Today's episode of Market Talk is brought to you by Growmark FS. Keeping up with the latest in ag is a challenge, to say the least, but there are experts nearby ready to help. You'll find them at your local FS. You can trust them to bring you customized agronomic grain and energy solutions bored of the latest thinking. That's because FS specialists receive continuous training that keeps them current on the latest trends, practices, and technologies. So you'll get local expertise that's both exceptional and up-to-date. Visit FSSystem.com to learn how FS is bringing you what's next. Bringing you the ag information you need, this is Market Talk. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. And welcome into Market Talk from the third and final day of the Cattle Industry Convention at NCBA Trade Show in New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Thanks for joining us here today. we got a busy show on tap. We are going to speak with Richard Fordyce from OBP here in just a minute. Coming up later in the show, we're going to talk Cattle Contract Library Pilot Program with Tanner Beamer of the NCBA, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And we're going to talk to the new president of the NCBA, Todd Wilkinson, rancher from South Dakota. He's going to join us here at the end of the show as well. But kicking things off, joining us now, always great to catch up with him, Richard Fordyce. He's the Business Growth Director of Agriculture at Osborne Bar Paramore OBP. Richard, great to see you. Great to catch up with you here during the Cattle Industry Convention in New Orleans. I hope you're doing well, sir. Absolutely. Well, it's always good to see you and always good to catch up. Um, And, you know, I Obviously, there are a lot of conventions and meetings, you know, that have happened over the years. And in New Orleans, it's a good place to be and and good place to catch up with folks and see people, you know, especially, you know, with the in the cattle industry that you don't see on a regular basis. But you do see them here and it's good to see them and catch up. And there's a lot of discussions that happen at this convention and especially this year. I mean, we think about just off the top of our head cattle inventory down we saw those numbers earlier this week from usda beef cow herd you know down to levels we haven't seen since i believe the 1950s i I mean this is you know numbers and we've known that this contraction and this you know lowering of the herd has been coming and now we're getting more of these confirmations from usda and i know it's a big talking point here at the convention it absolutely is and it will continue to be i think um There'll be a good session um, talking about um, where these cattle numbers are. What does that mean to the market? What does that mean for um, you know decision making that cattle producers are going to be making um, about what to sell, what not to sell, what weights to sell? Um, you know, and taking advantage of uh, of markets that seem to be trending in a good in a good direction, and predicted to trend in a good direction for a while. Yeah, and I think about this too, a lot of different groups with different data coming out talking about, you know, okay, we're contracting the herd, expect that to be bullish for prices, but also this could be a multi-year type of rebuilding of the herd. It's going to be a story, not just a 23 story, 24, 25, 26, 
and beyond. I think that's another part of the conversation as well, is how long is it going to take for us to rebuild that cattle herd? It is. And, and you know, obviously we just know the, the physiological nature of cattle and you don't turn those numbers as quickly as you do, say, you know, in the pork industry or certainly in the poultry industry. So it, it is going to take some time to turn these numbers around. And, you know, we had a lot of factors that were impacting that. It was... Um, uh, in, in, in large part due to drought and the inability for cow producer, for calf, so cow-calf operations, so owners of mother cows, to be able to retain those cows in their herd. They had nothing to eat. Water was hard to find. And so, you know, the option that a lot of them took was liquidating a portion or all of their herd to get through some of those really, really challenging weather issues. So, um, I, you know, I know that, um, you know, that the cow, the, the cow number is down. And as you said, um, you know, we'll get some better numbers, I think, this week. There are multiple presentations where they're going to be talking about that. And so, you know, we sold calves. Uh, my, as you know, I raise corn, soybeans, and cattle. And we sold calves on Monday, sold, you know, the bigger chunk of our market steers, uh, but we did something a little different this year. We, uh, we, we always retain some heifers to go back into our own herd, but we're keeping a larger number this year, um, uh, quite a few more than we had in the past. And we're going we're gonna to carry those heifers out to maturity, breed them, and then we're going to sell bred heifers. So um, talking to other folks that have kind of similar ideas, um, you know, about what, what we can do you know, in the industry, what we can do as producers to help start to build that cow number back up. And that's an interesting point you brought up. And I was going to ask if you're hearing that from other folks, you know, around you in Missouri there or across the country. I mean, I can't imagine that, you know, not everyone's going to change their operation, but a few people may be thinking about doing some things differently like you're doing. Right. And I, and I think, um, you know, it certainly depends on, you know, where you are from a cash flow standpoint, where, sure. where you are, you know, in your business. Can you, um, you know, can you basically uh, defer that income out? Because if I'm selling, if I'm selling market heifers, you know, I'm going to get those dollars today. So can I, can I, from a cash flow perspective, um, can I wait and get compensated for those females later? At a at a higher at a higher price, that's why we're doing it. Um, you know, some folks are able to do that, and maybe some folks need to go ahead and market those those heifers um, just from a cash flow and business perspective. But if you, you know, I'm just I know what we did. We kept uh, probably three times more than we typically would. Um, we still did sell some heifers, but we think we kept what we thought were the best that we're going to make good replacements and. We're going to try it, Jesse. We're going to, we're going to carry them out and, and see how that works. It's a great point you brought up, though. I mean, think about high interest rates right now. If you have to go to the bank to get any cash flow needs or depending, you know, we look at what, you know, we're getting for cash in feedlot country right now in the sale barn. We think about where the futures market is. We think about those feed margins with mm -hmm. high corn and wheat prices. I, I, there's... There's a lot roped into that aspect of it as well that some folks may not be able to make a slight change to their operation just because they're constrained right yeah, now. That, that is true. You know, I know when we loaded cattle on Monday, um, you know, certainly that's always, uh, that's always a good thing. That's like harvest, um, you know, obviously if you're a corn or soybean grower. 
Um, but the other thing was is that we are now not feeding near as much corn. Um, and so that was kind of a relief just from, again, from a business perspective, a cash flow perspective, those cattle now are moving on to somebody else and, and, and they're going to feed those cattle. So, um, you know, another aspect too, I think that folks have to consider, and we, we, we thought long and hard about this was, do we have the, do we have the pasture acres? Do we have the forage, um, to be able to put more animals into the operation for a longer period of time through those grazing times, right? Do we have access to that forage, to those, to those grazing acres? And we think we do. We're gonna need we're gonna need some rain. Um, you know, if we go into a dry summer, dry grazing period, we might be in a little bit of trouble. But we'll have to wait and see how that goes. And again, we are talking with Richard Fordyce, Business Growth Director of Agriculture at Osborne Bar Paramore. And we're going to continue our conversation with Richard coming up here after the break. We're going to talk more about some farm bill issues in D.C., some things that he is keeping his eye on there, as well as just more discussion about what's going on in agriculture, including the uh, thoughts about the potential Mexican GMO corn ban and much more. We're going to get to those topics on the way here after the break as we continue with more Market Talk live from the Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA Trade Show in New Orleans, Louisiana. We'll be back right after this. Let's get it. Keeping you informed with the latest market information for your operation. Now, back to Market Talk with Jesse Allen. Welcome back to Market Talk. Jesse Allen here as we continue for the Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA Trade Show in New Orleans, Louisiana. We are talking with our good friend Richard Fordyce, Business Growth Director of Agriculture at Osborne Bar Paramore and former FSA Administrator. Richard, let's segue over to some different topics as well in agriculture. I always like to kind of run through the uh, the hot headlines with you. I think a big one, too, that's also being talked about here at the Cattle Industry Convention is the potential of this uh, GMO corn ban from Mexico. I know the National Corn Growers Association, uh, we've talked to some of those folks about it, the administration, everyone coming out, you know, fighting Mexico on this. What are your thoughts, the latest you're hearing just with, with all of this? Because it's a, it's a tenuous situation right now. You know, it really is. And and, you know, there are a lot. So I do I do applaud the administration. I applaud NCGA, um, other groups that have been very vocal um, and really talking about why this is this 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 won't work. Mm-hmm. Um, it won't work for U.S. corn farmers and it will not work for Mexican companies and Mexican consumers. I mean, let's get right down to what that looks like. Right. If there is truly a ban on GMO corn. Where are they going to source? Where is Mexico going to source the amount of corn that they need? Right. So, um, you know, I'm from Missouri, um, and Mexico is the number one export destination for Missouri corn. Period. Mm-hmm. That corn is not segregated. That corn is likely. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's got to be close to 100%. That corn is GMO corn. It's going into those feed mills, going into other processing in Mexico that are GMO. I, 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 was, I was reading something this morning um, that there was a producer that was, that was in um, Pennsylvania, I believe. And so, you know, they, she indicated that their, their corn does not, is not exported. There is such a demand for corn 
uh, soybean meal on that kind of that eastern shore, um, you know, and for poultry production and pork production that none of their corn is exported. But if it were, um, she said that, and we needed to go to Mexico, we're going to have to change our production practices to be able to suit that market. That is impossible to do to maintain the yields that we're looking at, to source chemistry that allows us to control pests, mm. um, you know, whether that's insect or whether that's um, whether those are weed pests. Uh, that the you know the industry is not capable of making that abrupt turn at a very short notice. You know we've we've probably got a generation of corn producers that have never not had GMO mm-hmm. traits in their in their toolbox, and that's it. I mean I grew corn prior to GMO um, you know being introduced into corn varieties. And it's a lot harder to grow corn when you've got a scout for insects. It is, um, you know, it's just, it's a bad signal when we have folks that are wanting to ban GMO. There's a whole bunch of reasons, and we know what those are. There are environmental reasons. There are um, certainly, um, you know, producer safety reasons. There are a lot of things that can, there are a lot of things that GMO traits in corn do to help us be more sustainable, to help us be more environmentally conscious and friendly. Um, and to go the other direction is just, um, it's just not a good option at this point. And I can't imagine as well, I, everything you, you said, in my, in my opinion, spot on. I can't imagine as well that if something were to happen, and I don't think this is going to go through, I think there's going to be enough dialogue between administrations to stop this, but if it were to go through, what impact would that have on on the markets? What impact, you know, because we're also watching right now this explosion of renewable diesel, soybean prices are high, well, corn prices got to try and stay high to, you know, fight for acreage. So if something would happen with Mexico, I feel like that could throw our corn bean markets out of whack a little bit. You know, it, it could. Um, and, and I believe you're spot on. I believe there'll be there'll be a resolution to this issue. Um, you know, I do know that, um, you know, the administration, whether that's USDA, whether that's the U.S. trade rep, um, uh, NCGA, mm-hmm. the farmer leaders on NCGA um, are, you know, it's full court press. Um, in trying to trying to get the Mexican officials to understand the implications of this, but also educating, um, you know, we we so Mexico has been such a great partner in agricultural trade mm-hmm. that maybe we've neglected to uh, really hammer home the points of of this very positive relationship between U.S. and Mexican trade that, and we have not really talked about those. Um, you know, those things that are attributes to, to this great partnership and the, attribu- the attributes of, of agricultural technology that U.S. producers have embraced over the last 20 plus years. You know, we've done that in Europe a good bit. We've done that in other markets, um, keeping them abreast and keeping them informed of, of new innovation, new technology. And maybe we were just too comfortable with Mexico and, and didn't do our due diligence to keep them you know, updated on, on, again, on these innovations that are in our plants, whether those, whether that's corn or whether that's soy, whether that's mm-hmm. cotton. Um, and so I do believe there'll be a resolution, but 
the impact that you that you um, that you allude to is real. If if for whatever reason this can't get resolved, let's talk uh, other DC Hill issues as well. Obviously, farm bill discussions ongoing. Um, any of the latest you're hearing there, or any other issues that you're watching uh, right now on Capitol Hill. So, um, you know, I think uh, the last time we visited, um, G.T. Thompson had been elected as the new chairman of the House Ag Committee. And I know I actually talked to G.T. on the phone last week. Um, He's very optimistic that they're going to get something done in 2023 uh, for a farm bill. You know, we, we and we've talked about these provisions within the farm bill that are important. You know, certainly, um, you know, the conversation between, you know, uh, the title programs around commodities conservation, the farmer facing part of the farm bill and the nutrition part of the farm bill, keeping those hooked together. Um, you know, I know that that's, that's certainly going to continue to be the desire of leadership, both in the house and the Senate, which I think is a good thing. Um, and then just, you know, where do we, and, and, and I don't know that I've gotten a solid signal on where folks are leaning, but where do we, where do we see these maybe uh, small movements in, in conservation programs? You know, we've, we've heard so much about Climate Smart Ag. Um, you know, where do those land? I know we've got a number of pilot projects out there uh, that USDA initiated uh, a little over a year ago. Those are ongoing, that most of them are started. You know, they're going to start to determine what are, what are the, the effects of those climate smart practices. Will that be done in time to incorporate maybe some of those priorities in the Farm Bill? I think that's going to be interesting to look at. And then certainly, when we think about a safety net, you know, we currently have ARC and PLC, um, you know, in the, in the Farm Bill legislation. But we also think about crop insurance and that safety net conversation. And, and is there going to be some tweaks and changes to, to crop insurance to allow more flexibility to producers? Um, you know, I, again, talking to the chairman last week on the phone, again, very optimistic. He really wants to get something done in 2023, and he feels optimistic that he's going to be able to do that. Um, but what, and I think now, so, so now moving forward, we ought to probably start to see some signals on where the committees are leaning, um, what are going to be priorities, what are, th- what are like to haves that maybe aren't going to make it across the finish line. Um, but I think this is, this is going to be a really interesting time for folks to really be listening and paying attention to those conversations that are happening around the farm bill. Before we wrap up, Richard, um, obviously your role as business growth director of agriculture at OBP, it's convention season. You're working with a lot of different clients. What, what's some of the big things that you're working with them on here as we start off a new year? Any highlights that you want to share? So, you know, we work with a number of agricultural clients, and, and you're right. This is, um, we are really getting into the height of, of meeting season. Um, you know, the United Soybean Board is a client. Um, they're going to have a board meeting next week. And, you know, they'll be talking about priorities and things that they want to, um, you know, be looking at. Certainly, um, farmers, for so- farmers for Soil Health is going to be something that is going to be a priority for the board. And looking at how can they amplify that message. You know, we know we've got a lot of soybean farmers and corn farmers that have that are adopting soil health practices and that sort of thing. But this is a real concerted effort to get more folks get more folks under the tent of soil health, 
uh, cover crops, those kinds of things that are that, that help make a resilient agriculture. We'll wrap up our conversation for the month of February. Richard Fordyce, Business Growth Director of Agriculture at Osborne Bar Paramore. Thanks for joining me here at the Cattle Industry Convention. As always, appreciate it. Absolutely. It's always great to visit. Up next, Tanner Beamer with the NCBA. Agri-More Market Talk on the way right after this. Why are more people heating their homes with FS Propane? Because it's better to work with a company that lives and works in the same community that you do. When it comes to the comfort of your family, trust FS. We have highly trained service professionals who monitor your system for proper operation, safety, and maximum efficiency, so you can be sure that FS Propane will leave your family with a good, warm feeling all season long. Contact your local FS Propane specialist today. FS Propane feels like home. Visit fspropane.com for more information. Market information that matters to you on Market Talk. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And joining us now here at the Cattle Industry Convention at NCBA Trade Show. Pleased to catch up with Tanner Beamer with the NCBA. Tanner, always good to chat with you, buddy. Hope you're doing well. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Doing great. Hope you're doing great. I'm doing great as well. Always fun to be in New Orleans, get a little Cajun food in you, and just uh, enjoy the sights and the sounds, a little jazz music as well, and, and get to talk to cattle ranchers and folks in the industry. Absolutely. You know, you got 7,000 of our closest friends under one roof. That's always a good time. And speaking of friends, I love me a good steak, but you throw a couple Cajun shrimp on top of it and it makes for a great pairing I tell you what I think we need to go find the uh, the best steakhouse we can after this. I, I like the way you think buddy let's uh before we keep talking about food let's talk about the cattle markets and I think top of mind cattle contract library is now out there I know you guys uh NCBA gave a, a presentation on that or talked about that earlier this week so catch us up with the latest with this and just the stance of NCBA looking at this yeah so you know we've been really involved in this cattle contracts library discussion going back to basically its inception at the height of COVID, right? When we were watching our markets just unravel in the aftermath of temporary plant closures and slowdowns on the lines and, you know, COVID-related plant shutdowns, we really tried to identify these different ways that we could improve upon the marketplace. And one of those things was market transparency. Information is power. And this industry evolves at such a rapid pace, right? We're incentivizing things uh, at the at the packer level based upon signals that they're receiving from the ultimate consumer. Uh, and those, those supply and demand, those consumer demand signals need to travel all the way up the supply chain. And we need, to, we need them to travel quickly up the supply chain. One of the way that we do that is through the power of the almighty dollar. But another way that we communicate some of that information is through the market information that's included in things like livestock mandatory reporting. This contract library was something that we really wanted to see because we thought it would be so beneficial for producers to see the types of contracts that are offered by packers to producers to purchase fed cattle because a lot of the programs and the value adds that make those cattle more valuable to the packer are rooted in production practices that take place at the cow-calf sector or at the stalker level. Certainly a lot of it is in the feedlot as well, but cattle producers need to know what type of options are available to them. So we were very pleased to see USDA, um, after they got their million-dollar appropriations through the omnibus uh, that uh, Senator John Hoven from North Dakota helped to uh, steer along. We're very grateful for that. 
Uh, they released that library this week in pilot form. That pilot will run until September 30th of this year. Uh, and during that time, the industry will have a lot of opportunity to provide feedback on what things are working well, what things could be improved upon. Uh, and I think that the product that they've put out uh, is, is pretty interesting. So, Well, and I know you and I have talked before, there's been a lot of division amongst folks in the industry when it comes to cattle market reform in general. But it feels like this cattle contracts library, for the most part, there's a lot of support for this. There is. I mean, there. This is one of those rare issues. I mean, there are quite a few players in the in the cattle markets business, uh, and this is one of those things that that folks can really wrap their minds around because it just makes common sense. Now, that being said, there are some things that we need to keep in mind. Right? Anytime that you are taking somebody else's market or business information and turning that into a public document, you start to have some concerns about privacy, right? And protecting that proprietary business information. So when we started engaging with USDA to come up with some of these contract library proposals, that's one of the things we said. We said we need to report as much information as possible out there to the country, but we also need to make sure that we're respecting the proprietary business information of the reporting entities and the producers that are parties to those agreements. That, I think, is what USDA has tried to do in this program. Uh, it's been live only since we've been at Cattle Convention, and so I haven't had the chance to really sink my teeth into it yet. But from what I've seen and what presentations USDA has made here at the convention, it looks to me like that is they've, they've really tried to thread that needle and they've done a pretty good job of doing so. Other thoughts as well as we talk, and I know you got your pulse on things in D.C., Fisher-Grassley bill, I know that's still out there. Topic, any thoughts, the latest on that at well, all? Well, the latest on that is that it just got reintroduced in the U.S. Senate about uh, two hours and ten minutes ago. So, uh, look, that is a piece of legislation that, uh, unfortunately, we still cannot uh, support. You know, we have been opposed to that legislation, and we continue to be opposed to that legislation because it would put the government improperly in the role of choosing winners and losers in the marketplace. You know, the market is innovative. The market is constantly looking for ways to improve and to provide value. And that is not something that the federal government is known for doing well. As a matter of fact, the opposite is true. And so while, you know, Senators Grassley and Senator Fisher uh, have these constituent bases that really want to see that uh, implemented because those are business models that work really well for them, the vast majority of cattle producers across the rest of the country, that's not the business model that works best for them. They recognize it as important and there is a lot of work to try and increase the number of negotiated trades that there are that occur in the marketplace in the interest of price discovery. But mandating that packers purchase a certain number of their cattle from the negotiated market sounds great until you realize that that also inherently means that they're forcing producers to sell cattle on the negotiated market. And that might not necessarily work for their individual business models. So like I say, winners and losers, the government should never be in charge of picking them. Well, and I think as well, thinking about the grass or Grassley Fisher bill, some of the other bills out there that have been talked about before, and just the, the general disconnect between groups, et cetera, et cetera, when it comes to cattle market reform, can we find a common ground? I think that's something that I've asked a few folks a few times here the last couple of years. What's it going to take to find a common ground to get everyone to 
agree on something. Well, look, on the Fisher-Grassley bill, right, the, the proponents of that legislation have been saying for a couple years now that this has to pass. Otherwise, we will never see the kind of market improvement that we need. And that has proven itself to be false. The cattle price environment has improved dramatically over the last several years to the point where this isn't even an, a current issue in NCBA's eyes anymore. We're more focused on improving risk management programs through the Farm Bill. We're more focused on continuing to build upon this market transparency through things like the contract library and through livestock mandatory reporting reauthorization. And on top of all of that, we're really trying to make sure that we are arresting some of these high-rising input costs because that is, in my opinion, the biggest barrier to producer profitability. You know, two or three years ago, it was unfavorable cattle prices, but you've seen a meteoric rise in cattle prices across all categories, fats, feeders, calves. The only thing that has risen faster than cattle prices, though, is input costs. And Congress has got to start waking up and recognizing that as a threat. And I think there is a lot of common ground to be had out there. You mentioned the contract library. Livestock risk protection, pasture range and forage, some of these insurance programs, that's something I think everybody can get behind in supporting and bolstering. The contract library uh, is, is another great example of that in that, you know, I don't think there's a single cattle organization out there that opposes it. Um, you know, there, like I said, there were some that have some, some concerns with it. Um, but, you know, ultimately, what we're trying to do is make sure that we keep the industry uh, heading in the right direction. And this is no longer a current conversation. Tanner, you mentioned the farm bill. Uh, as we get prepared for that here in 2023, trying to get something done, we know as always it's a heavy lift to get a farm bill done. But as you look at things, look at things that NCBA is watching in the farm bill, and I mentioned some of them, but any other thoughts just about the farm bill discussions that are starting? Boy, that farm bill is going to be interesting, man. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with not so much it being a farm bill as much as it is just the current dynamics in Washington. You've got razor thin majorities in both the House and the Senate. Democrats, of course, controlling the Senate, Republicans, the House. Uh, and you saw that in full display uh, during the election of the Speaker. There are some freshman members of Congress that have voted for Speaker more times than 30-year veterans of the body. <laughs> and that, I think, is indicative of just how uh, crazy it is with these razor-thin majorities. Five Republicans is all it takes to really upset the apple cart if they try and push forward a partisan farm bill. And those dynamics are no different in the Senate, uh, where they still have to get to that 60-vote threshold on major pieces of legislation, and you've got a 51-49 divide. So that's going to be really interesting because in addition to uh, all of the different programs that NCBA supports, like the foot and mouth disease vaccine bank, things like you know, those risk management programs, a lot of the voluntary incentive-based conservation measures, we also are just looking at what's the Farm Bill baseline funding going to look like. You know, the 2018 Farm Bill costs somewhere in the ballpark, you know, eight give or take $800 billion. Give or take sounds like a funny way to describe that, but $800 billion just to keep up with inflation. And we're not talking any new programs, but just inflationary adjustments. This farm bill will have to be baseline funded at a number that starts with a T, not a B. And I don't think there's a whole lot of appetite to do that among the House Republican conference. And so now we're in a position where we're looking at, okay, if we're not going to uh, increase funding across the board to the levels just to keep up with inflation, where a dollar in 2018 is not buying the same as a dollar in 2023, 
you now have to start looking at what programs are going to get the axe. And that's something that we're going to take very seriously and make sure that our producers' priorities are captured in that farm bill. And, man, uh, we uh, we talk a lot about G.T. Thompson and House Republicans. I think that's because there's been a leadership change in the House, and it's just more of an interesting thing to talk about. But people need to really remember that Debbie Stabenow is still one of the, the negotiators of the farm bill, and she is not going to uh, very easily let up on any cuts to the nutrition title or baseline funding. Tanner, before we let you go, any other final thoughts you have want to share with us? You know, I, you and I have talked a lot over the last couple of years, and we have seen some nasty markets, and we've seen some improving markets, and I, we've been, I'm very bullish based on uh, some of the inventory reports we've seen, the Cattle Facts presentation this morning. They've got a really positive outlook. And, you know, one thing that I've been starting to tell producers again is, like, it's been pretty scary the past couple of years, and there are definitely some real-world threats out there to us today. We talk a lot about animal disease traceability at this convention with foot and mouth disease on the run around the world. Uh, but all that to say, you know, there has never been a more exciting time to be in the cattle business. There are opportunities out the wazoo. Beef demand is exploding, both here in our domestic markets and in all of our international export markets. And so it's just really exciting. Do we have challenges? Yes. Are we always going to see eye to eye with one another? Probably not. But that should not detract from the fact that this really is an environment that is ripe for the picking for the opportunistic cattle producer. And NCBA is going to remain engaged on the forefront to make sure that that remains the case for as long as humanly possible. We'll wrap it up there. Tanner Beamer with the NCBA. Thanks for joining me here in New Orleans. Always appreciate the time. Likewise, Jesse. Let's go get us that steak. Hey, great stuff there. Tanner Beamer of the NCBA. We're going to talk to the new president of the NCBA, Todd Wilkinson from South Dakota, coming up right after this on Market Talk. Market information that matters to you on Market Talk. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And joining us now here at the Cattle Industry Convention at NCBA Trade Show, pleased to have with us soon-to-be president, president-elect for about 24 more hours, uh, Todd Wilkinson, South Dakota rancher. Todd, great to catch up with you, sir. Thanks for joining us. I hope you're doing well. Hey, I am doing well. It's uh, great to be at a convention where you got this kind of optimism. I mean, you're you're seeing the cow-calf producers come into it with uh, – with the idea that maybe they got a little leverage for a change. And that's that's awesome to see our industry is probably looking at three, four good years for for the ranchers out there. Well, let's talk a little bit about that leverage. Let's talk some issues that are top of mind. And I think just to start on your point, I know we're going to be going through a bit of a, a rebuilding of the herd. We're, we're looking at different issues surrounding packer margins, et cetera, the cattle contract library now out there as well. So you think about a couple good years ahead here. What are some of the things that come to your mind with some of that optimism you're hearing here during the trade show and, and more, Todd? Well, Number one, unfortunately, how we got to this position is a function of a drought. Yep. And, you know, it, it, we're down millions of head of cattle from, from where we were. But, you know, this is not unusual ground for the cattle industry. We typically peak in valley every six or seven years. But what's happened now is we're at record exports. We're at uh, all-time demand for uh, for our product. So our products are selling well, they're getting exported, and then you couple that with the cow herd being down. 
we finally have the leverage on the Packer, and, and I, I like to be able to play the game with a few aces in my hand. So uh, I enjoy having some leverage for a change. I, I definitely would uh, think that you and, and many other folks like to have some of that leverage. And I know as well, you mentioned the drought. Uh, that's been tough. I could think especially well in the Dakotas. We've seen that drought. You move out west, we've seen that drought. Uh, what are your thoughts with just the state of things, trying to get some of that moisture, trying to rebuild our forage and, and grassland, pasture, et cetera? What, what are your thoughts there as we kind of try to come out of this drought? Well, you know, I can personalize it from my perspective, from my son and I, uh, we've never had five dugouts, and we have a lot of pastures, but I've never had five dugouts go dry in the same year ever, and all the 40 years I've been doing this, so uh, you know, it really hits home when all of a sudden, uh, I had grass, uh, but, I, but I didn't have I didn't have moisture, and it wasn't like I could build a pipeline or something into them, so that impact going across the countryside has is, is just been really difficult for the producer, but you know, um, as much as we like to complain about moving snow, uh, there's, it's made up of, uh, of it's just frozen, uh, frozen water. So that, that snow is going to melt someplace, and, and it's going to help uh, maybe revitalize some of this ground that really needs a drink. Definitely. I know there's some other issues that you're going to have a, a hand in with NCBA here this year. Thinking in D.C., I know we got a farm bill we're trying to figure out, and sounds like you know that's going to be a heavy lift, like most farm bills are. Uh, what are your thoughts there as you look at NCBA priorities for the farm bill? Well, certainly one of them is you know, and it's been relatively a new creation is that livestock uh, risk policy for for the uh, the calf or or the the feeder mm-hmm. you know uh i look at our uh family farm operation and i see my son with crop insurance on corn bean and wheat and you know there really hasn't been that type of a product other than the last four or five years for that a good product anyway for the for the cattlemen and now we have a product that's working and it's we just need to make sure that we can continue that product because right now I could insure one cow or I could insure 2,000 cows. And, and if, if that rancher can put a floor in on a catastrophic event, then they have the ability to maybe make it through some of those issues. Another big farm bill uh, issue is we were successful in getting the foot and mouth vaccine funded in the last farm bill. I was to the tune of like $150 million. Mm-hmm. And now we need to continue that because if we don't continue it, uh, the vaccine eventually expires and then we have to get the preparedness. You know, it's, it's one thing to have the vaccine. It's another thing to have all the tools in place to be able to implement um, quarantine quickly and then release major areas from quarantine. Well, obviously, yeah, you mentioned that, and that's a, a very, very big topic that I'm glad you brought up. I was going to bring that up as well. Obviously, watching different diseases around the globe, keeping FMD out of uh, out of the U.S., out of our herds, etc. Very, very important. That just goes along with a host of other issues that I know NCBA is always on top of in D.C. for our, our ranchers uh, across the countryside, Todd. Yeah, and... You know, with with us having a, a split uh, Congress, mm-hmm. uh, I think we're 
we're going to be stuck in uh, gumbo here for a while in terms of uh, new things coming at us. But unfortunately, the administration has clearly identified this is we're going to take our issues forward by regulation and them taking taking issues towards us by regulation, WOTUS, mm -hmm. uh, Endangered Species Act, all of those issues are, are now coming up. And, you know, the farmer and the rancher, we don't have the ability to fight those things effectively. That's why NCBA is on the ground. That's why we're, we're filed into the WOTUS lawsuit uh, that's in front of the Supreme Court. We, we've just filed an injunction request in Texas trying to stop the EPA. Those issues don't go away, but they got, they got emphasized to a higher degree, I think, since the last election, because the administration has clearly charted a course now to try and overregulate the America's producers. Well, Todd, congratulations on taking over as president of the NCBA. I know we'll be talking to you again real soon. Appreciate a few minutes of your time here during the convention this year. Hey, appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. And again, that is the incoming president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, Todd Wilkinson from South Dakota. That's going to do it for Market Talk today from the final day of the Cattle Industry Convention at NCBA Trade Show in New Orleans. I'm Jesse Allen. Have a great rest of your day. Why are more people heating their homes with FS Propane? Because it's better to work with a company that lives and works in the same community that you do. When it comes to the comfort of your family, trust FS. We have highly trained service professionals who monitor your system for proper operation, safety, and maximum efficiency. So you can be sure that FS Propane will leave your family with a good, warm feeling all season long. Contact your local FS Propane specialist today. FS Propane feels like home. Visit fspropane.com for more information.